0: So I I want to start by saying that I I love preaching to Seven Mile Road. I love the way that you um, hear the Scriptures, that you receive the Scriptures, that you sit in attention and sit under the authority of the Scriptures. Um, It has become evident to me your desire to grow in the Scriptures, to understand the Scriptures, your interest in learning more about the Scriptures. All of that is a a preacher's delight. It, It makes the task all the more joyful. But a a healthy caution for new churches like us, a healthy caution for churchgoers who come weekly to sit under the scriptures is, is what are we doing when we study the scriptures? So another way of saying that is someone has once said that Bible study is never complete without obedience. Right, so Bible study is never complete without obedience. That if what we gather for is information, then it's like a half-baked cake. We, we haven't finished the job. The only way that the study of the scriptures becomes complete is if it goes from information into transformation so that it affects, if it changes our lives, it, uh, it affects the way that we think, it affects what we believe, the choices that we make so that we live different. Because otherwise all we do is we grow up here without any of it translating to down here or out to here. So I remember someone asking, uh, you know, you study the book of Acts. Good, how is that study going? And, and people always say, it's going great, we're learning so much. And then the necessary question has to be, good, so how many churches have you planted? And then we go, no, 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 you don't get it. We're just sitting in the living room, we're just studying together, we're at church, but, but it's going great. But then you want to ask, but, but in Acts, everyone's on mission, churches are being planted everywhere, so how is the Bible study leading to obedience or transformation? Or you study the book of James and you go, how is James going? Oh, it's great. We're learning so much. Good. How many orphans are you caring for? How many widows are you taking in? How are you doing at serving the poor? No, no, no. It's just Wednesday nights. We meet at a Starbucks. We just study together. But the study's great. We're learning so much. The teacher's wonderful. It's really interesting. And you go, we get that. But James is all about living out your faith into action and and letting that faith propel you to care for the poor and care for the widow and care for the orphan Bible study that doesn't lead to transformation will always be half-baked and incomplete. So that's a necessary caution for a church like us to hear what a pity it would be if we walk through the book of Jonah and we go that book is amazing what a great story what a, a brilliant tale and we don't allow any of that to seep past our heads through information into transformation. If we don't allow it to change our hearts and affect our thinking, to affect our choices and even to the way that we live. So just to be explicit and clear, what I'm shooting for today, hear me, what I'm shooting for today is that you have come to church one way with a certain set of assumptions and beliefs and thoughts and opinions and that you will leave different. That you will be wrestling with these thoughts so that you might be wrestling with what will it look like to apply, to obey this word. How will it affect my thoughts, my opinions, my heart, which leads to my choices and my life. I'm praying for myself. Hear that. I'm not speaking at you. I'm praying for myself that God, through the preaching of your word, you've got to affect my set patterns, set opinions, set thoughts, which would lead to different choices, which would lead to a different life. And I'm praying that same thing for you. Okay, so today we're continuing in the book of Jonah. If you have a black Bible, it's on page 774, 775. We're looking through the story of Jonah. Here's where we've been so far. In the first week, we looked 10,000 feet high. We looked at a broad view of the whole book, all four chapters, and we looked at the great gospel that is Jonah. The next week we started in chapter 1. We looked at verses 1 and 2 and we saw the great sinner that is Jonah. Right? God had called him on mission to Nineveh. He responds by running 1,000 miles in the other direction. Then the next week we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 to 16 and we saw the great storm. So Jonah had run. He was on a ship. He was headed in the other direction and God hits him with a great storm. Last week we were in chapter 2 and we looked at the great storm. Fish. We saw Jonah swallowed up sovereignly, supernaturally, providentially by God through the fish. He spared for three days and three nights and in verse 17 he spit back onto the shore. And each week you'll notice we're picking up that word great. We said that word gadol in the Hebrew in the original language is all throughout the book of Jonah. You've got the gadol fish and the gadol storm and the gadol city. So each week we're picking up on that word, and today we're in Jonah 3, verses 1 to 3. And today we're looking at the Gadol city, the great city. Listen to the city that Jonah has been called to. 3, verses 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. All right, so here's what we're doing this week. We've introduced the major characters in this story so far. We said that God is the main character, and in supporting cast, you've got Jonah on one side and the city on the other side. And now we're meeting that other cast member. We said the whale is a prop off to the side of the stage. God is at center focus. We've met Jonah. Today we're meeting the other character, the great city. All right, let me pray, ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll walk through this together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and I come to you with great humility and dependence upon you. We trust that you can take this next hour and make it something from you. You can take it so that it, transforms us and not just informs us you can take it so that this word that comes from my mouth would be infused with your power so that the holy spirit would navigate it past our ears and to our minds to cause us to believe and work its way down to our hearts so that we'd understand and believe and cause it then to fill every fiber of our body so that it would lead to a different life to different choices to different worldviews, to different action only you can pull that off because our natural bent is to sit, to be entertained, to absorb and not have it filter into our lives. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would plant a word deep in our hearts that will produce good fruit, 160-fold for your great name. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're talking through the Gadol City, the great city, and I want to walk you through three questions as we do that. One is, how do you view the city? Two, how does God view the city? And three, how are we to respond to the city? How do we view the city? How does God view the city? How are we to respond to the city? So let's start at the first question. How do we think about the city? Let's look at Jonah. How did Jonah view the city That God had called him on mission to? What's Jonah's opinion of the city that God has called him to? If you were here that first week when we looked broad level at the whole book, we gave it away right at the front and we said, Jonah hates Nineveh. Jonah hates the city that God has called him on mission to. Jonah hates Nineveh. Jonah hates its inhabitants. Jonah hates its ways. Jonah hates everything about this city. Now before we're too hard on Jonah, let me just introduce you to the city that Jonah has been called on mission to. Let's talk for a moment about Nineveh. If you remember, we said that Nineveh is 700 BC in the Assyrian Empire, this great empire of what would be today Iraq, and Nineveh is this leading city, the capital city of that empire, and so you'd find in Nineveh everything you'd find in any typical city you'd find lots of people. And not homogeneous, like you'll find in the suburbs or the countryside, heterogeneous, so different people, different races, different culture, different backgrounds, different religions, different world views, the whole thing is different. But crammed full of people. Lots of people in this massive, great city. Right? Lots of resources, lots of influence, lots of importance, lots of power. Again, you saw already in the text, it, it almost bends over backwards to make sure that you get Nineveh is a great city. You, you hardly have Nineveh mentioned once in the book without that adjective, gadol, attached. So in 1 verse 2, when God calls Jonah, it's go to that great city. In 3 verse 2, when God calls him again after the fish, go to that great city. Just in case you forgot, in 3 verse 3, it reminds you, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In 4 verse 11, after Jonah still doesn't get the point, God's going to end the book by saying, Should I not pity that great city? So you're supposed to associate Nineveh with greatness. Great. In fact, I want you to hear that greatness was sort of Nineveh's destiny. What I mean is, Nineveh doesn't appear in the scriptures for the first time in Jonah. In fact, the first time we see Nineveh is way back in Genesis, at the beginning of your Bible. In Genesis 10, there's this story of a man named Nimrod, who's this great hunter. And it says that Nimrod went to Assyria and he founded a city called Nineveh. And as far back as Genesis 10, 12, it says, which is that great city. So as far back as Genesis, you've got this view already in mind that Nineveh is this great, massive city. It's it's this city that is a leading city. It's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. That meant the king built his palace in Nineveh. He governed the empire from Nineveh. So when you're looking at Nineveh, you're looking at bright lights, big, cosmopolitan, culturally rich city. So can you imagine what happens when Jonah... Country boy from Israel walks into Nineveh for the first time, right? What does he see? What does he hear? What does he smell? What does he watch? Because you have to remember, Jonah is from a town called Gath-Hefer. And just by hearing it, you get how much of a hick town that is. He is three miles northeast of Nazareth, this village that another great prophet would come from. So Jonah's gone from Gath-Hefer in Israel to now Nineveh leading city of the known world at that time what's he thinking I can tell you what he's not thinking he's not thinking would you look at this I mean how resourceful are these people how impressive are their structures how brilliant is their city how massive are their towers how how brilliant is the architecture How rich is the food and the music? Let me tell you what Jonah's thinking. I hate this place. I hate this city. I hate its people. I hate its culture. I hate everything about the city. Because Nineveh represents for Jonah a threat to his safety, and to the safety of the people that he loves. It's a violent city. It's a wicked city. They hate Israel here. They hate my people. I hate this city. Jonah wants nothing to do with Nineveh. Now again, before we're too hard on Jonah, here's what I want you to also understand. Nineveh is as bad as Jonah thought it was. Nineveh is a wicked city. Nineveh is a violent city city. In fact, throughout the book of Jonah itself, God repeatedly agrees with Jonah. In Jonah 1, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, because its evil has come up to me. Almost like this smoke of evil has reached the nostrils of God and he smells the stench that is Nineveh. In chapter 3, next week, when the king himself hears of Jonah's message, he himself agrees We have violence all over the city and evil in our hands. And so Jonah's city, this Nineveh, is a wicked, violent city. In fact, one commentator has said that unlike any other people in all of biblical history, you'll be hard-pressed to find any people that are more arrogant and brutal than the Assyrians, than the Ninevites. Let me read you a quote that one of their kings a century before Jonah wrote. In describing his conquest, this king said, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. In the British Museum, you have more writings from the great kings. In one battle, he kills 3,000, takes some prisoners, and this is what he says. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many soldiers. I burnt young men and women to death. I could keep reading, but some of it will turn your stomach. He would literally take people, skin them alive, and then he would hang human skins along the wall of the city so that everybody knew what happened if you messed with Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked, evil, violent, unsafe city. So cosmopolitan, bright lights, big, culturally rich, educated, well-off city, wicked, godless, violent city at the same time. And so because of its great evil and because of its wickedness, I can tell you that Jonah's book is this message, Nineveh is going to hell. Right? The city is going to hell. And here's the thing, Jonah could not care less. The city that God had called him on mission to is going to hell and the religious, moral, church-going, Bible-believing, God-worshipping guy could not care less. In fact, Jonah feels that Nineveh deserves it and Jonah would applaud the destruction of the city. Because to Jonah, this city represents a threat to him, to his people and the people that he loves. Just let Jonah build a nice house with the people that he likes, the people that looks like him, worshipping God together. Do not let him have any part of this city. I don't want to go there. I don't want to live there. I don't want its problems to be my own. Let the whole thing burn. In fact, Jonah believes this so much that after God forces him, sort of pins him to the ground, And forces him to go to Nineveh. So he's run the first time. If God swallows you up in a whale, you figure, okay, I can't run a second time. So Jonah goes. The second he's done doing what he needs to do, listen to what it says in 4 verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. You hear that? He goes into the city because God forces him to and the second he can get out, he gets out of the city, builds a shelter for himself outside the city and pulls up a chair to take a view of what's going to happen there. He's on the outside looking in, waiting for this thing to be destroyed as it deserves. So Jonah represents the religious, moral, good, Bible-believing, God-worshipping folks who live on the, ex- the outside, the outside, outskirts of the city looking in will not allow its problems to become his own now here's my question what we started with how do you view the city how do you view the city that god has called you on mission to because again we've titled this series we are jonah because we keep finding similarities because god has sent us to a godole city to a great city a city with a lot of people sixth most popular country in the city in the country a city with its own rich history and rich education and rich culture and people from every corner of the earth more colleges and universities here than almost every other city in the country And so you have people literally from every corner of the earth touching down on this city for a season of their lives before they go on to influence other parts of the world. The entire world is at your city. But also a city plagued with violence and wickedness and evil. And so how do you view the city that God has called you to? If you're honest, some of us will honestly say we hate the city. We hate it. It's unsafe, it's dangerous, it's dirty, it's unclean, it doesn't have the luxuries that other places do. We hate the city. It's a threat to us, a threat to the people that we love. How are we going to live here, raise our children here? Others of us will say, we don't hate the city, but we just use the city. right? So maybe you don't hate the city. You work in the city, you play in the city, you eat in the city, you recreate in the city, you visit the city. But you're never going to allow the city's problems to become your own. You'll never allow this place to seep into you. You will live in isolation and use what you need and what you can from this city, but don't expect anything more or anything else. Right? We are just like Jonah. In many ways, we're just like him. We will set up a shelter on the outskirts and look in, To wait and watch and see what happens here. To this area, to this region that we have been called to. But here's what I want you to consider How does God view the city? If that's how we look at this place, this region that we've been called to, how does God view the city? Again, we've been saying that throughout the book of Jonah, this word gadol is used. And in fact, God himself describes Nineveh as this gadol city. And if you translate that most literally, you know what it means? It means a great city for God. It's very interesting. Every time he speaks of Nineveh, he speaks of it as a great city for God. A great city for me. That means that when God looks at Nineveh, God says, that is my city. I made it. It's people I made. It belongs to me. And so Nineveh is a strategic place for what God wants to do. For example, if you want to know how true that is, what happens when God sends his messenger into the city? If you want a message to spread throughout the entire empire, where do you go? He sends them into the leading city so that when Nineveh hears Jonah preach there, the entire city repents so that the king himself hears of what has happened if you want proof that that's the way it always is what happens when the church is first planted so in the book of acts Jesus has died he's risen again he's gone into heaven the first apostles go and plant churches where do they go they go to the cities every region they go to they go to the leading cities in fact Paul will write back and say we've reached this place for Jesus and so you go Paul hold on you've only planted one church in the city, how are you going to say the whole region has been hearing the gospel? Because Paul's strategy is, if we can get a gospel-centered missional church in the heart of the city, the whole place will find out. It's like one pastor said, if you want to reach artists, you go to the suburbs or the countryside. If you want to reach the art world, you go to the city. If you want to reach lawyers, you can find them in the suburbs or the rural side. But if you want to reach the legal profession, you go to the city. Because as goes the city, so goes the world. In fact, if you want to know that this is true, history tells us by 300 AD, 50% of the cities were Christian. In fact, historians tell us that the word pagan meant someone from the country. Because Christianity was this movement that spread throughout the urban areas, throughout the cities, and spilled out, and it was the people on the outskirts that had not heard of this movement. It took off like crazy because God sent his messengers into the city. But God loves the city not just because it's strategic, but hear this, because he genuinely loves the city. In 4 verse 11, when Jonah still doesn't get the message, what does God say? Jonah, should I not have pity on that great city? It has over 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. God's heart beats for these people in the city. When he looks on the city, he sees it crammed with people and his heart beats for them. I'll tell you a story. I remember being in New York City with a good friend of mine from seminary, from Bible school. So we're sitting at the corner of New York's, uh, one street in New York City. We had gone to chicken and rice. So we went there. So I went to take him there to, to show him New York City. How are you going to find New York City without chicken and rice? So we're sitting at the corner. I've got my pita and chicken in hand. And you know these street corners, you have 50, 60 people waiting there for the light to turn. So every three minutes, you've got 50 or 60 people who wait there. So he's sitting there, another guy in Bible school. We love the Lord. We want to serve him. And he's sitting there and he goes, Ajay... What do you think when you see all these people? So I've got a mouthful of pita, and I go, um, nothing. And I go, why, what do you think? He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it, forget it. I go, no, no, what, what are you thinking when you see them? He goes, I, I just wonder, how can we reach them for God? So now I feel like a moron, and I go, yeah, 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 that's, that's what I was thinking also, right? I feel like ever since, every time I see a crowd of people, I think of him, and then I think of that. Because I think that's God's heart. You and I drive by every street of the city and we don't think of a thing because me and my wife and my kids. And yet God's heart sees the city crammed full of people. 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left and his heart breaks with mercy for even a wicked pagan city like Nineveh and even a wicked and violent city like Philadelphia. And here's the other thing. What's really interesting is that God loves not just the individual people, He loves the whole fabric of the city. So when you get to 4 verse 11, the verse is about to make sense, and then it takes this left turn, and you're like, what? Because God says to Jonah, should I not care for that great city? It has 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left, and all this cattle. And you go, what? What? Right? I get the 120,000 people. Why, why does God's heart break for cattle? As though he's some great, maybe he is an animal lover, but is that the, the heart of it? And this one pastor said, in our day, right, your, your money is on a small green bill. In that day, your money was tied up into your livestock. Right? You, you fed your money three times a day because that was your economy. And so it's as if God is saying, should I not care about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left and that city and everything about that city? It's economy. It's housing. It's safety. It's education. It's social problems. God cares for the whole fabric of the city. He doesn't just love the 120,000 souls. He loves the whole city and everything about it us Christians we are so concerned with life after death that we forget that God cares about life before death I am all for the gospel being proclaimed so that everyone might know of the gospel's safety for life after death but not to the exclusion of a God who cares about life before death a God who cares for the fabric of the city for its education for its society for its housing for its crime for its safety Because God cares for the whole thing. I'll show it to you. If you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 29. We'll look at that for a few moments. Jeremiah 29. It's on page 656. While you're turning there, let me give you the background. It's the passage that Kate read for us. In Jeremiah 29, now you're a few centuries past Jonah. So you hit fast forward for a little bit, you stop. And now you've got this other kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom. And they've been taken into exile by an empire called Babylon. So these Jewish people, their temple's been destroyed. Their enemies have come and taken them out of their land and brought them into the pagan, godless place of Babylon. So now they're far away from home. They're far away from God's land. God had promised them a home and a land and a temple. They're far away from it all, and they're surrounded by pagan idolaters. And they're sitting in Babylon. And so when you're sitting in that situation, you hear whatever you want to hear. And wouldn't you know, some false prophets come. In Jeremiah 27 and 28, some false prophets come and tell the people exactly what they want to hear, which is, don't worry, in two years you'll be out of here. In two years, God will take you and take all the stuff that was brought out of Israel and bring it all back and you'll be back in Jerusalem. Just to let you hear it. In, in chapter 28, you don't have to turn there. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is one of the false prophecies. The God of Israel. I've broken the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. All right, so if you're a people who's been uprooted from your land, you're put in a foreign place and you've got this promise that you're going to head home, how are you going to live? I'll make it more personal. Some of you come from immigrant families. How did your parents live in this land? Maybe some of yours did assimilate. Let me explain my dad. My dad came to this land and from the day he got here till now, his heart is ready to go back. And so since he's lived like that, let me tell you what life looks like. Life looks like fear, isolation. You protect your culture, your customs, your ways. You've got a big tattoo that says no assimilation tattooed to your arm because you don't want this foreign thing to infiltrate you. You huddle with your people because you don't want the things of this place to absorb into you. You're scared all the time and so you drift back. You live on the outskirts. You isolate yourselves. So... Imagine that, and now imagine Israel with this promise that two years from now we're going to go back. And so what do they do? They settle on the outskirts together. They huddle together. Don't immerse. You don't buy homes. You rent. You've got your bags permanently packed. You never settle down. Life is in pause because you're just waiting to get out. And then in Jeremiah 21, God sends a real prophet named Jeremiah with a real message for the people And God basically tells them to do everything opposite to their instinct. Because listen to what God says to them. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters Take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What does God say to the Israelites? Move in. And move in and, and not just move in, Build houses here. Settle down roots here. Raise your families here. Have babies here. Get married here. Grow vineyards here. Contribute to the city here. Don't decrease. Don't hit pause. Don't have your bags packed. Build homes. Live here. Don't grab the first job that goes out. Don't stay here for a moment with your eyes somewhere else. Stay here. For as long as I have you, because you're not going to be here two years. He'll go on to say, you're going to be here 70 years. And then while you're here for those 70 years, seek the welfare of this city. And pray for its blessing because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you hear that? God says, verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God says, seek the welfare. That word welfare is the word shalom. It's the word peace. God is saying, seek the peace of the city. Except peace, not just like our word. Our word simply means the absence of conflict. In Hebrew, shalom means the well-being of everything. The, The all is wellness. Everything's right. So seek the peace of the city, meaning let everything be well in the city. Work so that the society is well, and the education is well, and the housing is well, and the safety is well. Seek the shalom of the city, right? Actively work for it. We we Christians, if you're a Christian, there's this verse in Philippians 3.20 that says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So we hear that and we go, we don't belong to this earth, our citizenship is in heaven. But with that balance with Jeremiah 29 means, if you're going to be a citizen of heaven, it means you've got to be at the same time the best citizens of earth. right? Christians are often useless because we're waiting in a shelter somewhere, waiting for God to beam us up. And God is saying, I'm going to beam you up, but till I do, you should be the best citizens of your city. You should be seeking the welfare, the shalom of your city. Right? Build homes here. Live here. Work for the good of this place. And then he says, where I have sent you into exile. Let me ask you, have you seen your duration here that way? Because God says to these people who have been carried off, you're not there by accident. I sent you into Babylon. So let me tell you, every one of you, You think your job brought you here. You think your school brought you here. You think some family brought you here or some other circumstance. And God is saying through all of that, I got you to exactly where I wanted you. The city and the neighborhood and the area and the block and the home and the apartment that you live in, I put you there. What would happen to your life if you saw that you were exactly where God wanted you to be? In Acts 17, it says that the God of heaven has appointed the very dwelling home, dwelling place and time for each of us to live. So you are exactly where God wants you to be. And God has scattered Seven Mile Road all across the city and its surrounding areas because God wants us to seek the welfare of this region, of this area. And then he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So let me ask you very simply, what occupies your prayer life? My prayer life is, bless Shainu, bless Hannah, bless me, bless dad, bless etc., etc., etc. And God is saying, I need you to pray for someone outside of you, for the sake of this city. In fact, God says, pray for its welfare because in its welfare... You will find your welfare. Think of the logic of that. In the shalom of the city, you will find your shalom. So, so very simply, what does that mean? If I pray for good schools, you know who's going to benefit from those good schools? Hannah, my kids. You benefit. If, if I pray for the safety of the city, you know who benefits from that? You benefit because you get to walk the streets of the city. If you pray for good teachers, if you pray for good leaders, if you pray for the shalom of the city, God's saying you will be blessed with shalom. There's a saying that when the tide goes up, every boat on the water goes up. So if the city is blessed, we're blessed. If we've decided to build homes and plant gardens and live here, then it benefits us to pray for the blessing of the city so that we might be blessed as well. Every benefit to this place, God says, leads to your shalom. Some verses from here in Je- Jeremiah 29, 11. If you want, you can look there. It's a very well-known verse. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you or to give you shalom or to give you welfare, not to harm you but to give you hope in a future. Right? Can I just ask how many of you have heard that verse before? Would you raise your hand for a second? All right. That's a lot of you. Every time I've seen that verse, it's either a plaque or a t-shirt or a mug, and behind it is this beautiful countryside with this nice hill or this nice forest or this beautiful bird. You know what's very interesting? Jeremiah 29, in that verse, is set in the context of skyscrapers and crowded apartments and the city. It's not a verse that's spoken in the countryside. It's a verse that God speaks to His people when they're in the city. And it's not a verse that's individualized about my personal life. So God's going to know the plans He has for me to give me hope in the future as though it's separated from the people that God has called me to. Right? We take that verse to be just about me and the college I need to get into and the job I need to go to and for the sake of my family. When the verse's context is, as you seek the shalom of the city, shalom will come to you for I know the plans I have for you. Plans for shalom, not to give you harm, but plans to give you hope and a future. God loves the city. So how are we to respond? That'll be my last question. And we'll go through this quickly. I'll finish in a minute. We're like Jonah. God loves the city. So how do we respond? I want to tell you of a strange phenomenon that's happening in our city of Philadelphia. Here it is at a time when every Christian should run as far as they can and as fast as they can out of the city, you know what the strangest phenomenon that's happening in our city is? Christians are moving in. Christians are moving into the city. Churches are being planted in the city. Over just the last decade of just what I know, let alone what's really happening, I can tell you of Grace Church, planting on the other side of Roosevelt Boulevard, less than five years old, 250 people or so, people being baptized from the community because they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Within the last 10 years, Acts 29 churches of which we're a part, three churches of liberty, one in Fairmont, one in Fishtown, one in South Philly. One of them less than two years old, hundreds of people moving into the city, living in the city, reaching people who are in the city. Epiphany Fellowship, a church across the street from Temple University in North Philly, 500, 600 people in a culture of hip-hop who would never go to church and yet are finding the gospel there. Real-life church being planted in Bridesburg, worshiping in Port Richmond in our city, less than 10 years old, 100 people gathering there, hearing the gospel, baptisms just this week. Bridge Church planted in Cheltenham Avenue in the last 10 years. City Church planted in University City to reach the professionals and students there. Seven Mile Road Church planted in some corner of northeast Philadelphia with 50, 60 people less than a year old for the sake of the gospel in the city. Let me ask you, where do these people get an idea like that? Where do you get an idea like that? That when you should go out these people are coming in. Where do you get an idea like that? It's because hundreds of years later after Jonah, another prophet came. And that prophet, the gospels tell us, set his face to Jerusalem. The gospels say that Jesus knew what was coming to him in Jerusalem, and yet he set his face to the city. And even when his people told him not to go there, he was determined to go. And before he got to the city, in Matthew 23, he doesn't stand outside of it like Jonah, waiting for its condemnation. In Matthew 23, he weeps. And he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her children, but you were not willing. And this prophet goes into the city, not for its condemnation, but for its salvation. And where Jonah goes out to wait to see what God's going to do to the city, Listen to what Jesus does, Hebrews 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jonah is spared and he goes outside the city to wait for its condemnation. Jesus is dragged outside the city gate and condemned so that the city might be spared. That's the gospel. The gospel is this man was dragged outside the city, not spared, condemned, so that the city might be spared. Who do we look like? And the truth is, I look, I look more like Jonah than I do like Jesus. And so I'm preaching this to my own heart. And I'm asking us to consider, how does God's word apply? Remember what we started with? Not information, transformation. How is this word going to work its way to our heads and hearts and to our lives. For some of us, maybe it'll mean that God's calling you to stay in this city and its surrounding areas to work for this region. For some of us, it's working to plant vineyards here and raise families here, take jobs here, and and whatever the case, to pray for the welfare of this city. So that's what I want to do. As we close, here's what I want to do in response. I want us to pray corporately. I want us to pray. Maybe your honest prayer will be to just repent. And that would be enough to say one line and say, Jesus, I don't have a heart for this city. Would you give me one? That would be a good, honest prayer to start. Maybe you pray for wisdom. Shinu and I have been talking all week. How does this apply to us? Because this is going to have an effect on how long we're here and where we're here. And do we go from renting to buying? And if so, where? Has, has God called this church to be in the Northeast? So I'm, I'm confessing my fears, my need for wisdom to you. But let's pray. And then let's pray for the welfare of this city. You don't have to pray long. If you'll know one thing about Seven Mile Road, we're not trying to be religious. No lofty prayers. You can say one line which says, bless our leaders, bless Mayor Nutter, bless the education, give us more cops, give us better teachers. But God has said that one of the ways we can respond is to pray for the shalom of the city, for in its shalom we will find our shalom. So let's pray for a moment. You can lift your voice, you can say a line, and then I'll close us in prayer.